So have you got everyone got a sheet? Good, 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 good. Let's take our Bibles, please, and open to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I'd like to read from verse 1 to verse 18. Psalm 139. From verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall uphold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, when in continuance, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Let's pray, and as we commence our Bible study tonight, Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures thank you that they are a revelation uh, of yourself to us and uh, lord we receive it as such thank you that they are authoritative and uh, again we receive it as such and submit ourselves under the authority of the scripture i uh, thank you that they are profitable to us uh, everything that we need for salvation is found in the scriptures everything we need for life and godliness is found in the scriptures and uh, father we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us and your wonderful plan of salvation lord we pray that you might bless our time of bible study tonight please lead us and guide us by your spirit we pray in jesus name amen <clears throat> well tonight we're continuing our series on the attributes of god this is study number four so far we've seen that god is incomprehensible yet knowable Secondly, God is eternal. Thirdly, last week we saw God is self-existent and self-sufficient. Tonight we're learning that God is omni-something. Omnipresent. Interesting word. Interesting word. I attended George's Hall Public School and then graduated Condor Park High School. And one of the differences between primary school and high school 
was that in high school, the first class of every day of high school was roll call. The teacher would read through the list of surnames in alphabetical order and when your name was read, you had to call out present. And I still remember the roll call names of my year seven roll call class. Bush, Butt, Burns, Cannon, Shea, Hall, Johnson, Kavanagh, Lindsay, Maniv, Matthews, present. I can't remember any names after that because obviously I didn't listen, didn't need to listen beyond that. But by calling out present, we were letting the teacher know that we were there at school in that classroom and nowhere else. But God's not like that. God was present in the classroom and God was everywhere else. He is present everywhere. The word omnipresent or omnipresence is comprised of the word omni, which is a Latin word for all, and the word presence, which has to do with location or place. So when we talk about the omnipresence of God, as far as the definition is concerned, is that God is present in every place at the same time. He is fully present in all places simultaneously. Okay, I'll put that as a blank there for you to fill in because I don't know how to spell it. Not true, I can Google it. Fully present in all places simultaneously. Now God's omnipresence is one of three attributes of God that have that prefix omni. The other two being omni, omnipotent. That is, God is all-powerful, can do whatever he chooses. And the other one is God is om, not omniscient. God knows everything. He knows everything that's actual. He knows everything possible. So tonight and for the next two weeks, we're going to look at these three attributes, which always operate together. For instance, God can do anything he wants to do because he's omnipotent and he can do it anywhere he wants to do it because he's omnipresent. God knows everything there is to know. He is omniscient because all knowledge originates from somewhere and God is present in every one of those places. More than that, God can do with that, knowledge, with that knowledge whatever he chooses to do because his omnipotence gives him the power to act. And since he's omnipresent, he is always wherever he needs to be in order to do what he needs to do. Now it's going to take our, uh, some time to wrap our minds around the three omnis, but we've got three weeks to try and so we begin this evening. There's a delightful children's book about God's omnipresence called God is With Me. And it's a blessing for a parent to take their small child and to read to them the words of this book. It's a short book. My God always sees me. He sees me when I sit down and when I stand up. He sees me when I go outside. God sees me when I go to bed. God is too wonderful for me to see him now, but he sees me. My God is always with me. If I go up, he is with me. If I go down, he is with me. If I wake up quietly before everyone else, 
even then my God is with me. If I swim to the bottom of the sea, God is with me. When it's so dark that I cannot see, God can see me and he is with me. God made me wonderfully and he loves me. Tomorrow when I wake up, God will still be with me. Now those words are a paraphrase of Psalm 139, a psalm that David wrote about the infinite knowledge and infinite presence of God. Verse 7, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? God has infinite knowledge. There's nothing that he doesn't know. He also has, his presence is also infinite. There's no place that God is not. He's not confined or limited to one place. His essence is included in no particular place. At the same time, there's no place from which he is excluded. He is neither shut up nor shut out of any place. God is present in all places equally at once. God is omnipresent. Perhaps you are like me and uh, you've made an appointment with, without first consulting your diary. And when you do consult your diary, you realise you already have another appointment at that time and that at that time on that day and that creates us a problem because we can't be in two places at once but God doesn't have that limitation God is a spirit he's an infinite spirit and ancient ancient theologians there in your notes used to describe God in terms of a circle whose center is everywhere his circumference is nowhere in other words, God's presence does not have any boundaries or limitations. There's an ancient mariner's chart in the British Museum. It dates back to the 1500s. And across the vast areas of unexplored oceans, the map maker wrote, here be dragons, here be giants, here be monsters. But at some point, that map fell into the hands of a scientist, Sir John Franklin, who scratched out those words and wrote, Here is God. A.W. Tozer said, Begin where we will, God is there first. Because God is everywhere, he's always close at hand. Acts chapter 17, 27 and 28, Paul says, He is not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. The whole of our life is lived within the atmosphere of God's presence, who, according to Ephesians 1.23, filleth all in all. Fills all things in every way. And to help us to understand the fullness of God's presence, consider this illustration from A.W. Tozer. He says, God fills heaven and earth, just as the ocean fills a bucket which has been submerged in it a mile down. The bucket is full of the ocean, but the ocean surrounds the bucket in all directions. So when God says he fills heaven and earth, he does, but heaven and earth are submerged, submerged in God and all space is too. God is in all and all is in him. Well, these are high mysteries and in the end all explanations and analogies are going to fail. The attribute of omnipresence is unique. 
It's something that belongs to God alone. It's beyond our comprehension. As David said, Psalm 139 verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. However, there is a story in the Bible that does help us to understand the omnipresence of God a little bit better. So I'd like to invite you, please, to turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. God knew that the city of Nineveh was in a bad way. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was the greatest, Assyria was the greatest superpower of the world at that time. And Nineveh had become a wicked, immoral, very, very degenerate city. God had the right to judge the city in any way that he pleased, but God had a heart for the city. And in his grace, he offered them mercy. And God's plan to show mercy to Nineveh began with recruiting a prophet called Jonah to go on a, a short-term mission trip. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Literally, the sins of Nineveh, the wickedness of Nineveh were in God's presence. And that's because God is everywhere. Not just about the last thing that Jonah wanted to do was to go to Nineveh and hold revival meetings. Nineveh was a place that the prophet Nahum called the city of blood. Possibly Jonah's reluctance to go to Nineveh may have something to do with the fact that it was 700 miles away from where he lived. That might have been part of it, but certainly a major part of his objection to going had to do with his ethnic prejudice. You see, the Assyrians were Gentiles. They were the sworn enemies of the Jews, and at that point in time, they were sworn enemies to almost everyone else in the world as well. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with evangelizing his enemies. By the end of the book, chapter 4, it becomes clear that Jonah simply did not want God to save those foreigners. As a matter of uh, what Pastor Christie reminded us on Sunday evening, was, he was a respecter of persons. It's been said that Jonah was wrapping the gospel in his flag. Now, I wonder if that's a timely challenge for us. I wonder if we too are guilty of ethnic prejudice. Charles Feinberg said, it's there in your note, Jonah refused to go to Nineveh because he was afraid God's message would be successful among them. The heart of man naturally prefers judgment on other men rather than the manifestation of God's grace and mercy to them. And how unlike the Lord we often are. And for that reason, when God said to Jonah, go, Jonah said, no. Like many of us, Jonah said, no. Verse 3, Jonah rose up, but Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. 
So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish, as it happens, is in the completely opposite direction from Nineveh, way, way in the opposite direction. God told Jonah to go east and the young man decided to go west. Through the Straits of Gibraltar to the distant coast of Tarshish, modern day Spain, ships bound for Tarshish were the great ocean liners of biblical times. And with any luck, by the time the ship visited all the ports of call along the way, his Mediterranean cruise could last up to a year. Jonah was, it's here in your notes, was embarking upon a long disobedience in the wrong direction. A long disobedience in the wrong direction, the furthest possible destination away from the will of God. And it was going, it was going to be, it proved to be a very expensive sabbatical. Jonah made his way to the shipping office to book a passage to Tarshish, paid the fare. However, Alexander White noted that no booking clerk could have told Jonah what it was actually going to cost him to get on board. We need to understand this. It's there in your notes. Running away from God, trying to run away from God is always a costly business. In monetary terms, Jewish commentators always taught that Jonah spent a fortune on his great escape. By the time he paid his passage, he probably wouldn't have had enough money to even to get to Nineveh. Not that he wanted to get to Nineveh. He certainly did not. But in your notes, by going his own way, Jonah put God to the test. Not only did he test God's patience... He also tested his presence. Twice in verse 3. And again in verse 10, we read that Jonah tried to run away from the presence of the Lord. And that's the essence of sin, isn't it? Trying to get away from God and not wanting to retain God in our knowledge, Romans 1. Jonah was conducting an experiment here. He was doing lab work in practical theology. Psalm 139, David asked, where could he go to get away from God's spirit? Where could, he, where could he flee to to get away from God's presence? I have no doubt that Jonah knew this psalm. In chapter 2, when Jonah gets to praying, it's interesting, you, you analyze his prayer that he prayed in the whale's belly, and the phrases of his prayers are taken from various psalms. Jonah knew the book of Psalms so much that he knew the book of Psalms that, that when he's prayed, he just prayed psalms. In his, in his desperation, there's no question that he would have known Psalm 139, and no question he would have known David's answers to those questions. But Jonah wanted to carry out his own independent research. And aren't we just like that? You know, we know what the Bible says. And the Bible warns us very, very clearly. We know what it says. But we want to try it ourselves just to make sure. The results of Jonah's experiment were rather unexpected. Look at verse 4. 
The Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. God was present all right, present in the storm, with great power and great might. He literally hurled a storm at Jonah. There must have been some storm. The Hebrew word used here for mariners is not the word used to describe someone who's still trying to find his sea legs. Okay? These were grizzled veterans of the wind and the waves. In English, we could say they were old salts, Captain Ahab's, every one of them. But even these old men of the sea were terrified. The ship was likely to be broken. And desperately, they cried out to their gods. They threw their precious cargo into the sea. Meanwhile, where was Jonah? Last half of verse 5 tells us Jonah was gone down in the side of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. He was sleeping through the storm, oblivious to the danger that he was in, both nautically and spiritually. Verse 6, So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. The captain had ordered all hands on deck, so he was amazed to catch Jonah asleep. Now, it seems to me that the captain had his doubts about the usefulness of prayer. The only gods that he knew were the gods of the pagans, which were extremely unreliable. In his experience, gods might or might not pay attention to your prayers. They could easily be busy somewhere else. You could never be sure because their gods were not omnipresent. And the irony is that it took this man with his <coughs> fractured faith, his bad theology, the irony is it took this man to prompt Jonah to pray. Again, that's a convicting thought for us. Charles Feinberg says it's there in your notes how the Muslim, with his five times of prayer daily, puts us to shame as believers. Are there among us those who remember not to lift their hearts to God once a day? But when the pagan gods failed to answer, the sailors then cast lots to determine who was responsible for the storm, verse 7, and the lot fell on Jonah, at which point the sailors wanted to know who he was, what he was doing, and especially what God he served. And Jonah's answered, his answer terrified them, verse 9. He said unto them, I'm in Hebrew. I fear the Lord, Jehovah, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. It was obvious that Jonah's God was no local deity. He was the supreme God, the ruler of the heavens, the sea and the dry land. In other words, he rules everything and is present everywhere. Even present on board this Ship bound for Tarshish. Well, the sea was getting so rough that sailors knew that something had to be done. 
The last thing they wanted to do was to make Jonah's God angrier than he apparently already was, and so they did their best to row Jonah back to land. And finally, the sea grew so wild that nothing else could be done. Verse 15, so they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. The story of Jonah is full of practical lessons about God's omnipresence. Let's consider three of them. Number one, the first lesson is that the omnipresence of God causes considerable fear. It causes considerable fear, for it's impossible for the sinner to run away from God's judgment. It's impossible for the sinner to escape God's judgment. Because God's judgment is a manifestation of God's wrath, and God is everywhere. It's not a single place in the physical universe for the sinner to escape to, to run away from the judgment of God. Jonah tried to run, but he couldn't hide from God's presence. God saw Jonah's sin. God watched him go down to the harbour in Joppa, Joppa and book his passage, set sail for the western lands. God was present when the storm began to rise on the surface of the sea. God was present too when Jonah was tossed overboard. And the storm continued, the storm that God conjured up, whatever the right word is, the storm that God created, continued right up until the moment that Jonah splashed in the sea. God was present in judgment. In your notes, because God is everywhere present, there's no escaping his judgment upon sin. As C.S. Lewis said, God is ultimately unavoidable. Since the first sin of Adam, human beings have been trying and failing to hide from God, to cover up their sin, right up until the end of the Bible where we read about wicked man crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the judgment of God. But as Matthew Henry says there is no escaping God's avenging, avenging eye, no going out of the reach of his hand. Rocks and mountains will be no greater shelter at the last than fig leaves were at the first. Jeremiah 23:24 says, Can any hide himself in the secret place that I shall not see him? Saith the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Job said of God, Job 31 verse 4, Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? There's no such thing as secret sin. Every sin comes under the direct scrutiny of an omnipresent God. Not even the privacy of our own mind is private. The Bible says in the day of judgment, Romans 2.16, God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. It's a fearful thought, yet true. All of our attempts to cover up our sin will ultimately fail. Sin cannot escape God's notice. 
There's a very real sense in which every sin is a denial, a real denial of the presence of God. Is As we reflect upon our own conduct, I'm sure that you can think at this moment of some sin or sins that you have committed before God that you wish that you never had committed and probably you never would have committed them if the Lord had been standing there right beside you. But the fact is the Lord was with us when we committed those sins. He was present there as he is present everywhere. But by sinning, what we do is we, deny, we, we do our best to deny the reality of God's presence. If you want to keep away from sin, remember how impossible it is to escape God's notice. Never live as if God does not exist. Practice the, what Brother Lawrence used to call the presence of God. Practice the presence of God. Speak to the Lord frequently throughout the day. Remember, everything you say, everything you do, everything you think is said, done and thought in the infinite presence of a holy God. He is the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation, the invisible watcher of every screen. Secondly, the omnipresence of God, however, doesn't simply cause fear. It also offers comfort. The second lesson to be learned from Jonah is that you cannot run away, escape from God's grace. We cannot escape from God's grace any more than we can escape, than a sinner can escape God's judgment. God was present in grace for the sailors in Jonah's boat. When they prayed to him and asked for forgiveness, verse 14, God heard that prayer. For Psalm 145, verse 18 and 19 says, The Lord is nigh unto all that call upon him. To all that call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And the last thing that the Bible says about those old sailors is that they came to worship God in a biblical way. As the sea grew calm, there was a powerful sense of God's presence. And as the sky cleared and the waves then lapped gently against the boat, verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. And like the sailors, Jonah too received God's ever-present grace. Indeed, he cannot he could not escape it. Notice how Jonah describes his experience. At first, he felt as if he was drowning. Chapter 2, verse 3. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Jonah fought to keep his head above water, but then he got tangled up in seaweed, started to go under. Verse 5. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed round about me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. Verse 6, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. And by the time that Jonah finally called upon God asking for mercy, he thought he was a dead man. 
Verse 7, he said his soul fainted within him. His life was ebbing away. He was about to become forever entombed in the deep. And as he sank down, down, down to the bottom of the sea, it had a terrifying thought. It was this, that his experiment had succeeded. He thought that he actually managed to escape from God's presence. He says in verse 4, I'm cast out of thy sight. So he thought. And so we might sometimes feel. But Jonah could not escape God's ever-present grace. God was there when he was thrown off the deck of the ship. He was there to provide a great fish. The New Testament calls it a, a whale. To swallow up Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. And even in the belly of the whale at the bottom of the sea, God was there to hear Jonah's prayer. Chapter 2, verse 6. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. God heard Jonah from his holy temple. God heard Jonah from his heavenly throne because God's heavenly throne extends to the depths of the sea. Jonah couldn't run away from God's grace. I think when most people hear the story of Jonah, they're usually interested in what was going on in the whale. But the real miracle is what was going on in Jonah. He was learning to trust an omnipresent God who is abundant in grace and mercy. And once Jonah himself had been saved by God's grace, Jonah was able to speak the words of David's psalm from his own experience. Whither shall I flee from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, Sheol, Behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the outermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall uphold me. It's significant that the Hebrew word Sheol is used both by David in Psalm 139 and by Jonah in chapter 2, verse 2. In both cases, it's translated by the word hell in our King James Version. For the Hebrews, Shia was a place of death. And the fact that Jonah was in a kind of Sheol for three days and three nights is symbolic of the grace and mercy that God has shown to sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus told the Pharisees he would give them this sign. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah was the illustration, but Jesus was the resurrected reality. After he was crucified, Jesus remained in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. But God is everywhere, even the grave itself. And by God's Spirit, he raised Jesus from the dead. In your notes, now the same power by which God raised Jesus from the dead, the power of his ever-present grace, it's available to anyone who trusts in him for salvation from sin and death and hell. The key question is, have you received that grace? Perhaps you've got high moral standards like the sailors on Jonah's ship and yet have not yet called upon the name of the Lord to save you. Or perhaps you might be like Jonah 
A believer, yes, but going on your own rebellious way. But whoever you are, wherever you are, God's grace is near to you. Nearer than you think. Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. It was a poem about being pursued by God's grace. And the poem begins with the poet trying to escape from a stranger who's in hot pursuit. It says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. And the poet runs and runs and runs and runs until he tires of the chase and then he stops and there beside him in the darkness is a presence. And he discovers that the stranger that he's been running from all of this time is God himself, the hound of heaven who says, ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am him whom thou seekest. Has God's grace tracked you down yet? Perhaps you've been running and running and running and running, looking for meaning and joy and purpose in life. And is it possible, is it possible that the whole time you had actually been running towards that, but running away from God, who is actually the one who provides that? He's the one whom you seek. If only we'd stop and listen We'd find that he's right next to us, waiting for us to turn from our sin, turn our life over to him. Don't run away from God, run towards him. Well, the final lesson to learn from Joah and his great escape attempt is it, it, the story here issues a challenge. It issues us with a challenge, and that is this, that you cannot run away from God's call. You cannot run away from God's call. It would have been much better for Jonah to obey God in the first place. God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh, and one way or the other, God was going to get Jonah to Nineveh. Someone has said Jonah brought a one-way ticket, but God gave him the round trip. Unfortunately for Jonah, when he was finally ready to obey God's calling on his life, he found himself in a pool of vomit on a beach. But in God's providence, that's what the prophet Jonah needed to experience before he could be fruitful in ministry. Now, probably no one's been in a, the identical situation, but plenty of people have been in similar ones. That is, trying to run away from God's calling upon their life. If you belong to God by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you cannot run away from God's calling for your life. You may not want that calling. You might try to delay that calling. You might even try to reject that calling. But there's no way of escaping it. Romans 11.29 says, The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. God gives gifts. He doesn't take them back. God calls you to do something. He doesn't go back on that. God will not let you go. Some people think, you know, if I surrender to God's will for my life, then I know God will make me miserable. If that's your thinking, then you don't really know much about what God is like. Two things I'll just mention. Number one, it's not God's intention to make you miserable. 
It's not the kind of God that he is. It's not God's intention to make you miserable. And number two, even if he was, he doesn't need your permission. He can just do it anyway. Doesn't need you to surrender to do his will and then say, okay, make you miserable. When you answer God's call upon your life, you discover that the same God who is ever present in judgment upon the sinner and is always present in grace, extending that grace, the same God will be always present, all present to help you to do what he calls you to do. If you go where God calls you to go, he will go with you in all of the comfort and the help of his loving presence, his this is his unbreakable promise, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The promise of God's presence means that God is with you for, for all of life's emergency. Psalm 46, verse 1, a very present help in trouble. Furthermore, wherever God is present, this is in your notes, wherever God is present, he is present in all the fullness of his divine attributes. As the, the Puritan Stephen Charnock expressed it this way, his presence is not without the special presence of all of his attributes. It's not a piece of God here and another parcel there, but God in his whole essence and all of his perfection in his wisdom to guide you, in his power to protect and support you, his mercy to pity us, his fullness to refresh us, his goodness to relieve us. One might say that wherever God is, he's all there. And best of all, the presence of God will remain with you for until all your troubles are over. And after all your troubles are over, this is the glorious promise at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. To be in heaven is to be with God, and to be with God is to be in heaven, for in his presence is fullness of joy. There's one man who trusted in the promise of God's constant presence, and that was Patrick, the first Christian missionary to Ireland. Patrick faced many dangers during his life, some of them at sea. As a teenager, he was kidnapped by pirates, forced into slavery. Once he became a missionary, he was opposed by pagans and barbarians. But in spite of all those dangers, Patrick took courage from God's infinite presence. Every day he offered a prayer that became known as St. Patrick's breastplate, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I rise. In Westminster Abbey, there's a memorial elected to the memory of John and Charles Wesley. And on it are three inscriptions by John Wesley, quotes by John Wesley. The first one is, I look on all the world as my parish. 
The second, God buries his workmen but continues his work. The third one is the one that he uttered on his deathbed. Rising his, raising his arm, he lifted up his voice with grateful triumph and said, Best of all, God is with us. Best of all, God is with us. Wherever we go, God is with us because God is everywhere. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of opening the scriptures and Lord, what you reveal to us concerning yourself. Thank you for that which uh, we have considered this evening. Lord, it's hard for us to uh, get our minds around the fact that uh, how you could be everywhere simultaneously, uh, fully there, uh, fully involved in one person's life, and then uh, the same in another person's life on the other other side of the world and indeed in every person's life. Fully there, fully involved. Hard for us to grasp. Such knowledge is too high for us. But we thank you that where uh, our comprehension fails, uh, Lord, we can uh, simply come before you and worship and praise and adoration and gratitude for the the great God that you are. Uh, thank you, Lord, that even though you are so great, you humble yourself to condescend, uh, to reveal yourself to us, even in sometimes what must be simple and juvenile terms that we uh, even struggle to understand. But Father, we thank you for the uh, fact that uh, we're growing in our knowledge of you. I pray that would continue. I pray that we continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray that uh, as we grow in our understanding of you, we pray that our, our worship of you uh, will become a, a, such a, a priority for us such an essential thing for us. How else can we respond to the wonderful God that you are? And so we, uh, as we conclude our time here this evening, uh, Lord, we offer our praise, we offer our thanks, we exalt you, uh, we honour you, and uh, Lord, we just want to take our rightful place before you, uh, humbly and acknowledging your goodness and grace to us. Thank you that you are always with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.